Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today's episode is focusing on the history of uh, Syrian Alawis, or, or the Alawi community. We are going to take a broad perspective in the beginning and then really focus in on the history of the Alawi uh, community in uh, the Ottoman period. This is a really understudied topic, uh, but now much less understudied because uh, our guest today on the program, Stefan Winter, has published a new book entitled A History of the Alawis, which is out from Princeton University Press. Uh, welcome to the program, Stefan. Thanks very much. Stefan Winter is Associate Professor of History at Université du Québec à Montréal, that's the University of Quebec in Montreal, or UCAM. His previous monograph, entitled The Shiites of Lebanon Under Ottoman Rule, uh, looked at rural communities in Ottoman Lebanon and greater Syria during the early modern period, and so a history of the Alawis is a nice uh, complement uh, to that uh, long uh, history of research. Uh, well, I'll start off by reading some praise for the book um, from uh, Bruce Masters, uh, a, a well-respected historian of Syria. He says about a history of the Alois, there's a real need for a study of the Alois and their origins and place in Ottoman Syrian society. This book fills that void. It debunks historical myths on either side of the current sectarian divide in Syria and demystifies the sect's genesis. Incredibly rich in scope and detail, this seminal book should be read by anyone interested in Syria's past and present. So, Stefan, let's start off by talking about the the guiding motivation to write a book that treats the history of the Alawis in this very long uh, historical perspective. All right. Um, as you already suggested, it is similar in some ways to my first book, and I guess you could say it, it developed out of an out of as a sideline to that. Mm-hmm. Um, originally, in my dissertation, I thought of maybe treating both communities, mm. but for reasons of space and and also of, of subject, it's, it was not really um, necessary or the best idea. So I've been collecting materials on the Alawis for many years. Um, specifically on their situation under Ottoman rule mm-hmm. um, in the administrative system uh, of the provinces of what is now Syria mm-hmm. and Lebanon and, and southern Turkey and so on. There's quite a number of these documents, as you can imagine, much more than one often talks about in current yeah. discourse on the Alawis. Um, they were not necessarily treated differently than other rural communities. There are parallels to be made with the Shis of Lebanon or with mm-hmm various Kurdish or Bedouin rural communities in northern Syria, which which I'm also interested in. Um, the difference is, of course, that because of the current civil war in Syria, um, and also for a number of years before that, yeah. the Alawis have always been treated in, in Western discourse, in the media and so on, as something exceptional. Mm. And a lot of the previous studies on Alawism have always kind of gone from their somewhat strange medieval theology and jumped straight to Hafez al-Assad and the so-called capture of power of the Alawis. And people have literally said, well, you know, Ottoman period, there's nothing to say they were oppressed and that's it. And that's no more than that. And with all these documents, I thought, okay, let's actually take a look at what what their situation was. Right. There's idea. And we'll we'll talk a little bit about the, you know, historical development of the Alawi community. But so Alawis who were long concentrated in the mountains of the northern Syrian coast, there's this idea that during the 20th century, they somehow come down from the mountains and start ruling Syria as if they had been up there from time immemorial. And your work shows that there's actually a long history of movement and connections and engagement uh, uh, with uh, the surrounding communities and the polities that had ruled over Alawis over roughly a millennium. Uh, throughout history. That's true. Um, although throughout the medieval period into the autumn mm-hmm. period, into the late autumn period, they were, of course, concentrated in the mountains. Yeah. There, were no, there was no significant migration towards the coastal cities mm-hmm. or Damascus until the French mandate. Yeah. I don't even touch that in the book, but even in the period before, it would be wrong to think that they were cut off from the world around them. Right. Um, just as tax farmers, as... Uh, as agricultural producers, yeah. um, they were always integrated in the economy mm-hmm. and in the social life of sure. the region. And one of the interesting things we also see in this work is that historically, the Alawi community is you know, connected to greater Syria, but also to um, southern Anatolia, places that are now in modern Turkey. I mean, some of the earliest large migrations out of the mountain during the 19th century were, in fact, north towards uh, the Chukarova region in Adana. That's right. What is interesting is that it's relatively recent yes. in the history of the Alawi community itself, in their own oral history, kind of um, 
institutionalized in the Tariq al-Alawiyin, this mm-hmm. famous work of Alawi history in the early 20th century, these regions are presented as original areas of Alawi settlement. This is historically not necessarily yeah. true. And there's Ottoman documentation that's fairly precise in dating the beginning of this migration to the early 18th century. Yes, exactly. So let's let's initiate our listeners who aren't deeply uh, uh, involved in the in the literature and on the history and politics uh, of uh, Syria. Uh, tell us about the the origins of the Alawis the best we can. It's a complicated question, as you point out in your introduction. Sometimes it's uh, puzzling that we always begin with studies of such communities during the medieval period with some sort of religious conversion, as if religion is the defining feature of a particular community. But to the best of your ability, tell us about uh, how you frame sort of the origins and development of the Alawi community during the medieval period. Um, okay, I will try. And as you indicated, <laughs> already raises a number of questions. Yeah. Why do we have to define them in terms of religion? Yeah. And the reason we do define them in terms of religion is because as a, as a group, whether um, called Alawis, as mm-hmm. we have been doing for a century, or Nusairi is the mm-hmm. more classical term, they have been recorded, defined, discriminated against in the sources on the basis of a religious identity. Yeah. The population that now has this religious identity, of course, its roots go back further in the region, yeah. but the process of conversion to this religious uh, confessional identity um, starts in, in Baghdad uh, during the last imams, the last uh, Shi imams in the ninth century, um, where there were several groups of people having or claiming to have a particular mystical knowledge of the true nature of the cosmos and the imamate mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Um, and who go out to find uh, disciples to, to convert the masses to their brand of Ghulat uh, Shi'i mysticism. Mm. Um, and again, nowadays we have the tendency to see the Alawis as the sort of exception, as this bizarre holdover from um, the secret mystical path of the of the high medieval period. Mm-hmm. In fact, there were many of these movements, sure. um, including the Ismailis, who are mm-hmm. kind of... A, born of the same social milieu um, around the uh, around the uh, later imams uh, in Baghdad and who go out um, seeking to convert the masses to their brand of Shiism mm-hmm. and find converts among a large disaffected uh, rural population throughout North Africa and the Middle East. Mm. Um, so the Alawis were really part of a very large movement, yeah. one strand of the Shi outreach uh, of, of the medieval period, uh, 9th, 10th, 11th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and one that happens to have uh, gained some traction and survived until modern times. And for our listeners in Turkey, we'll make the always necessary clarification that Alawis are not necessarily the same as the people who are considered uh, Turkish or Kurdish Alawis in Turkey today. But um, in your description of that process, there is some maybe deep historical parallel in that, like if we look at the work of uh, Ayfer Karakaya Stump, uh, for example, Sufi um, orders uh, and uh, scholars who were also part of this kind of um, spreading of um, particular mystic traditions into the countryside uh, of Anatolia, even prior to the Ottoman period, um, sort of led to the formation of that community. So while the Turkish or Kurdish Alevis aren't necessarily connected to who we call Alevis today in Syria, maybe there is some if we want to talk about a connection, it's deep in that past. Absolutely. Um, it's a coincidence nowadays that the Alawis and the Alevis mm-hmm. have adopted a name that is basically the same, both based on Ali. Right. Then again, it's not a coincidence, not a complete coincidence. Um, both are born of these elite mystical mm-hmm. uh, movements, but that were diffused to a large rural population or several rural populations. It's probably wrong to think of the Alawis and the Alevis as two distinct communities, in reality, they're both dozens of distinct communities right. having similar orientations, but with very major differences, as can only be the case between uh, dispersed, illiterate rural populations. Exactly. And I think that's one of the challenges of studying uh, a community like this over such a long time period. I noticed in your book that the names of uh, or the identifiers of the community frequently change. Uh, historically, uh, Alawi is not the name that was used in the in the exonymic sources, for example, usually refer to the community as Nusairis. Yeah, that's right. Um, named for Ibn Nusair, the ninth century figure mm-hmm. who was a, a close adept of the of the 10th and 11th Imam. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's for this reason that they've been known um, throughout the medieval period as Nusairis, as mm -hmm. followers of Ibn Nusayr, something that was not necessarily very pejorative in the beginning. They rejected the term themselves, used other terms, mm. um, the true believers or the, the muahidun, the monotheists mm -hmm. and so on. But with time, of course, their more distinctive nature, na namely that they followed this one teaching of Ibn Nusayr as developed mm -hmm. by several other scholars, stuck with them. Um, it's only in recent years, in, in, in recent centuries, let's say, since the early 20th century, um, that they've rejected the term uh, more clearly and adopted as a group name something else. And so a, a history of the Alawis is a book about a community that is, in a sense, the, uh, defined by a particular set of religious practices and identifications. But this work is really more of a political and social history of uh, the Alawi community. You're raising the major paradox of this book, um, which claims on, in, on the cover page to be a history of the Alawi community. Mm. Um, whereas the conclusion I reach is basically that there is no such thing as the Alawi right. community. Um, it's kind of the conclusion I already tried to present in my earlier book on the Shi'is, um, that by defining them as a community, as implying that there is a uniform uh, sectarian confessional political agenda, um, that that is actually not borne out by the historical evidence. Right. Um, I can't really get around that. I mean, if people are interested in the Alawis as they are and yeah. should be in regards to the to their political role in Syria nowadays, we want to know about that. But if you look at the actual sources, you see that the communities claiming an Alawi identity or having an Alawi identity foisted on them in historical times uh, were often very divided, divided amongst themselves, were more defined by their internal conflicts mm. than by their otherness uh, as regards the rest of society, and so on and so forth. And of course, there's nothing particularly uh, unique about that historical experience no. for the Alawis within that, at least the Ottoman context, that this would be equally said about many different uh, communities. Absolutely. And that's the one thing I try to show is that they are really not more unique than any other rural or even urban community is unique within the Ottoman context. In pre-modern times, being unique was the norm, and the Alawis are not very different than others. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Stefan Winter talking about his new book, A History of the Alois, from Medieval Aleppo to the Turkish Republic, out this year from Princeton University Press. Uh, to find out how to get a hold of this work or to find some further reading for this podcast, visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we have a short bibliography. So History of the Alois is a is a expansive work. It, it covers a long time period, and you do have two chapters, actually, on the pre-Ottoman period, but as you said, really its focus is on uh, uh, Alavi historical experience uh, under the Ottomans. And so let's move our conversation right to that and tell our listeners that if they want to find out about the earlier stuff, they can check out your book or some of the other literature on the subject. Alawis first come under Ottoman rule during the 16th century uh, as part of the broader uh, Ottoman conquests of uh, you know, what was largely uh, the former um, Mamluk Empire. Tell us about those initial years of the incorporation of the predominantly Alawi regions into uh, the Ottoman uh, political and economic uh, apparatuses. Well, as you can imagine, there's not really a lot of sources on the rural areas of Ottoman Syria or anywhere else in that period. Mm -hmm. What we have in the Tariq al-Alawi and other sort of uh, oral history-based imaginings of, of Alawi history is the story that the Alawi, the very large Alawi population of Aleppo was uh, massacred upon Selim's conquest in 1516. Mm. Historically, there's no really no evidence for that. There's no evidence in the Ottoman Chronicles, even though they very happily refer to ki killing Kizilbash in eastern Anatolia and right. so on. What we have as a concrete historical source for this period are the Ottoman tax records. The Tapu Tahir de Freters of the uh, of the early 16th century, where, for example, the earliest work of um, the earliest tax census taken for the province of Tripoli, um, mm -hmm. the region of Tripoli, which was which was the the relevant province uh, where the Alawis were concentrated, yeah. dates from 1519 or just shortly after the conquest. Um, for that reason, it's actually an interesting source on late Mamluk 
administrative history yeah. because all the Ottomans really did at that early stage was just uh, continue on with the administrative practice of the Mamluks. That's an interesting point. Um, and in these um, sources, um, there's two things. There's a couple of reference. There's a couple of marginal notes. Tapu are usually just tax censuses, uh, lists of what mm-hmm. each village or tribe can produce in terms of uh, revenue. Um, however, there are sometimes marginal notes that refer to uh, political events, such as little uprisings, tax revolts, problems in collecting taxes. And we see that there were actually a number of revolts in the mountains mm-hmm. shortly before 1519 uh, upon the Ottoman conquest um, that prevented the tax assessment in several Alawi villages. And um, references to people fleeing from these Alawi villages to the lowlands, to Homs and Hama and Aleppo. Mm. Um, so rather than there having been war in Aleppo that drove the people into the mountains, it was more than anything the other way around. That's the one thing with this source. The other source is um, we're lucky in the sense, or I'm lucky in the sense, that the uh, Ottomans, like the Mamluks before them, imposed a special head tax on Alois. This is rather unique in terms of uh, the administrative history. Most other rural populations, um, whether Christian or Muslim, paid the same tax rates, which could vary from one province, if not from one village to the next. Um, but this is uh, one of the rare times we have really a sectarian tax wow. where we can identify heterodox Muslims um, vis-à-vis non-heterodox Muslims. This head tax um, called the Dirham uh, Rijal, the piaster on men, yeah. was imposed on, on Alois uh, on a per capita basis. And I, I don't believe you can really use tax censuses as statistical material, but what I can, what I have used it for is any place where the dirham was assessed, you could be sure there was at least um, an Alawi population. Mm. And that that allows us to trace with some precision exactly where uh, the population was concentrated. That's a very fascinating find uh, because generally in the history of like um, Ottoman law and taxation, you know, you have this division, Christians pay uh, a, a, a different tax because they don't, uh, serve in the military, for example. This is a con- conventional narrative. Here you have uh, Alawis being treated as a not really normal Muslim community in the sense that there's a special tax on them, but also not classified in the way that Christians or Jews and other non-Muslims would be classified. That's right. Um, so it is a discriminatory tax in the sense that only one kind of person pays it, much as the jizya is a discriminatory right. tax. How high, how onerous the jizya actually was on the Christians, whether it was mm-hmm. impossible and discriminatory and oppressive, um, that's, of course, a subject for debate and probably varied from one district to the next. And I think you, you can probably, or we have to say the same thing for the Alawis. I can't tell you this was particularly onerous on them because every village um, throughout Syria and other countries basically paid a different tax rate or a different mm-hmm. combination of taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does show that the Alawis were distinguished by their sectarian religious identity. At the same time, it also shows that they were integrated into the Ottoman administrative system. Yeah. They have this identity which singles them out, but which is nonetheless written into the administrative record and mm. is, is, is normalized somewhere. So let's briefly, before moving into sort of the 17th century and the transformation of the Ottoman state during that time. Let's just talk about the socioeconomic life of Alois uh, in, in the uh, early modern period. The, you know, how did they earn their livings? Uh, what were the agricultural or pastoral uh, productions, trade, etc.? We don't really know from the documents. Um, we know that they produced silk in the mm-hmm. mountains. This was one of the most important, certainly, cash crops. Mm-hmm. Of course, they had a, a local farming and orchard economy. Mm-hmm. Um, the lower-lying villages probably had uh, um, fishing and so on and so forth. Um, but I can't really tell you from the, from the documentation how they lived. Mm. What is important and what, is, what becomes a big part of the story I'm telling is that in the uh, 18th century, um, tobacco becomes right. a major, major innovation in, their, uh, in the agricultural production and therefore in the uh, organization, the social economic organization of the region. So we'll, we'll talk about the impact of uh, tobacco and commercialization in just a bit. Let's first um, talk about what happens to Alois during the period, uh, some would call it the period of crisis in the Ottoman Empire or a period where you see a shift towards um, 
a more decentralized form of taxation and administration. You can explain how you would characterize uh, this period uh, in the greater Syria region and for the Alawis in particular. But yeah, during the beginning of the 17th century, how do we see the political relationship between the Ottoman state and the Alawis? Is it similar to what was going on in other parts of the empire at that time? It appears to be very similar. Mm -hmm. For the early 17th century, it's really hard to say because, as you know, there are so few Ottoman sources or other sources Mm -hmm. for the early 17th century. Starting in the mid-17th century, we're quite lucky because the the court records of Tripoli uh, are extant starting in 1666. And right away with the first register, we have uh, numerous iltizam contracts um, given to local notable figures um, throughout the hinterland of Tripoli, Mm -hmm. as in the rest of the empire. This is indeed... Uh, the start of, of uh, the age of the Ayan, I, I guess you could say, yeah. um, in urban as well as in rural areas. Mm-hmm. And rather than send um, some Ottoman Timariot to try and raise taxes in the highlands of a region where he's not at home, um, you give these tax farming, cash tax farming contracts to local notables. Mm-hmm. And this happens throughout the, uh, the Lebanese uh, Syrian highlands um, and including the Alawi regions where they do give contracts to well-known Alawi families. And so this leads to the formation of a local Alawi elite that is governing over largely other Alawi populations, but is becoming integrated in sort of a, into sort of a, in, an Ottoman uh, provincial elite class. Yes, absolutely. That's like the rest of the Ottoman Empire probably mm-hmm. at this time. This local elite is being promoted. Um, these families... Um, several of whom we know the names of mm-hmm. because their names appear in the tax court records and in, in, in the in the court records of, uh, of Tripoli were probably important families before, um, but now being consecrated by the Ottoman court in Tripoli as the, as the Multezims, um, of course, are able to uh, consolidate the position mm-hmm. and assume a leader, leadership position, which often um, goes beyond their, their pure tax mm-hmm. district. And for our listeners who have been following the podcast for a few years, we had an episode a couple of years ago with uh, Zoe Griffith about Tripoli during this time period, again, employing the court records and looking at the creation of these uh, local families uh, who uh, benefited from uh, this uh, administrative shift in the Ottoman Empire. Um, I don't remember if these families were in fact Alawi because they wouldn't necessarily be identified in the documents as such. Uh, but they were, in some cases, they were families who were, for example, acquiring large uh, swaths of mulberries. Mulberries are, of course, used for the production of silk. Um, and, and, and during this period, uh, what Zoe found was, in fact, that um, these local elite uh, became, you know, increasingly um, sort of emplaced uh, Syrian region, some of them had come from elsewhere, um, but also, you know, became part of this uh, Ottoman notable class. Yes, absolutely. Especially in the highlands of Tripoli, um, the southern highlands were completely dominated by 12 Rishi elites mm-hmm. who controlled multiple tax farms. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the north was was Alawi families. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're quite right. They are not identified by their sect um, in these tax, uh, in these court records. Um, first of all, because it's not necessary Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few cases, in fact, where there's Christian notables as well acting mm-hmm. as, as tax intermediaries. Um, it's neither necessary nor is it desirable because that would be calling attention yeah. to an aspect of their identity, which in pure uh, Islamic law might cause a problem. Um, however, when we know these families, and often the same family will be castigated for being uh, for tolerating brigandage mm. and for oppressing the villages that they're supposed yeah. to be taxing. And they'll use all sort of uh, evil uh, words against them, Rafizi mm-hmm. and, and Nusairi, and this and that and the other thing. And the next year, you see them, the same court appoints them back to their, to their iltizam position. So this was not a secret to anyone, um, but it was not necessary to name it in the court records. So let's talk about how political and economic change during the 18th century um, impacted the historical experience of uh, Alawis under Ottoman rule. Uh, we've, we've already mentioned the introduction or the, the rise of tobacco uh, in this region uh, during the 18th century. Tell us how uh, the rise of tobacco changes things on the ground. The way it changes things on the ground, I would say, is it makes the rich richer and therefore, by definition, the poor poor. And what we have is a couple of notable families, Alawis mm-hmm. and others, um, who have been on the scene for a while as, as simple multisms, mm-hmm. 
becoming basically agricultural entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. um, having larger and larger fields, having more and more villages, producing more and more taxes. The iltizams get more valuable. These families get more entrenched. Yeah. Um, and you see that among other reasons. You see already the rise of tobacco. Latakia mm-hmm. is a boomtown in the 18th century. Yeah. It goes from nothing to a major port. Mm-hmm. It goes from being a village of two or three or four thousand to being the de facto capital of the province of Tripoli. This is something that's often underestimated. The governors of Tripoli spend more time in Latakia than in Tripoli at one Interesting. point. Um, and what this means for the actual agricultural producers in the hinterland and largely around uh, Latakia and Jabla, um, so that specific Alawi-inhabited part of the province of Tripoli, mm-hmm. um, is that uh, the families that are already there are becoming more powerful. The iltizams are being called for them personally. The castles which they inhabit, which no- notables in the mountains have often inhabited, are starting to be called for the families rather than by their mm-hmm. more historical names. Um, and there's more and more reference to tribes, mm-hmm. uh, to these people being the leaders of tribes. Uh-huh. Until this point, um, tribalism is not a factor, certainly in the Ottoman state state's perception of this population. I mean, I'm not saying that they were not uh, organized into large clans and, yeah. and tribal units before that, but it doesn't play a role in their um, tax status, in their organization right. vis-a-vis the Ottoman state before that. I suspect that it only starts being a social issue even for them at that point where these tax farmers who used to be the, the headman of the village and so on uh, have suddenly been promoted to something higher. That's a very interesting uh, point. And, and I guess, is are we, are we to understand that uh, the economic boon brought by tobacco uh, increases the political autonomy of the local Alawi elite during the 18th century um, in, in terms of um, their ability to put distance between themselves and the Ottoman state and its uh, policies? It increases their autonomy in the sense that they are richer. They can raise larger armies, mm-hmm. um, which starts becoming a factor, maybe not right away in the 18th century, but in the 19th century. I wouldn't say it removes them from the Ottoman state because they are as in, as dependent, if not even more dependent, on the recognition mm-hmm. of the Ottoman authorities of their position as tax farmer, as head of their tribes, so to speak. Yeah. So it's not as if they're being removed from the purview of the Ottoman state, but that purview is changing. And this is also a time period, as I understand it, within which uh, Alavi population uh, experiences a pretty significant uh, increase in contrast, actually, to many other parts of the Ottoman Empire during which, especially the late 18th century, is seen as a, a period of population crisis. Could you develop that and elaborate on what's happening? You know, sort of to ordinary Alavi peasants living in the in the mountains. Yeah, it seems that there's at least two things happening with this rise of Latakia, rise of tobacco mm-hmm. farming, and so on. There is, for one, just much more uh, stratification within Alawi society. Like mm-hmm. I said, the rich are getting richer; they're more powerful. They are now tribal leaders. They're starting to become feudal players on their own mm-hmm. right. They're starting to become partners of the Shihabi Emirate in Lebanon and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. something which they were never before. That's the one thing that's happening. At the same time, there's also demographic movement, probably expansion. We see them migrating more towards the coastal cities and, mm-hmm. um, as we mentioned earlier, towards Antioch and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, this possibly because of demographic pressure, just because there is a large population of of agricultural workers in the mountains, Mm -hmm. and also because of this increasing poverty, this increasing poverty vis-a-vis their own society, vis-a-vis their own elite. I think the research on Mount Lebanon suggests a similar development, uh, perhaps just a tad bit later, uh, among Maronite communities uh, with the rise of uh, silk economy and mulberries, uh, with with the com- you know and and the rise of Beirut as well as a major commercial uh, center. Yes, I'm. Sh- I think there are parallels to be made there. Um, the expansion of the Maronite community, particularly towards the south, towards the Shouf, towards mm-hmm. the southern Lebanese mountains, um, starts a good bit earlier, and it ha- probably has more to do with um, increased trade opportunities, with settlement opportunities mm-hmm. provided by the Druze emirs, in coordination with the French, who are becoming mm-hmm. major commercial partners. In this case, the Alawis are not so much 
um, looking for new commercial opportunities as um, new farming opportunities. Mm -hmm. They go towards uh, Antioch and then the Chukorova towards as, as, as farmers mm -hmm. um, to escape the poverty and the, let's say, feudalism that is becoming more and more marked in the region of origin. Mm. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Stefan Winter talking about his new book, A History of the Alawis from Medieval Aleppo to the Turkish Republic. So Stefan, we've set up a situation in which Alawis are experiencing a tremendous political and socioeconomic change during the 18th century, uh, and especially with the introduction of tobacco. Um, let's move to the 19th century, you have a whole chapter in the book entitled Imperial Reform and Internal Colonization, Alawis Society in the Face of Modernity. So the chapter is actually periodized 1808 to 1888. Uh, what's the major transition point uh, that you focus on? Um, that's a good question. And I apologize for the, for the title of the uh, chapter. I mean, modernity, trying to put a thousand years of Alawi history into six chapters in, in a short book. Um, I try to find general categories that yeah. sort of generally define what's happening in a specific period. 1808 marks a local, rather important local battle between Ismailis and Alawis that sort of highlights the high point of what I call Alawi feudal power, this mm -hmm. independence of the Alawi Ayan as mm -hmm. not just Multazans, but as industrial, uh, as agricultural industrialists and, and as leaders of militias. Um, whereas 1888, we can get to that uh, later, is marks the foundation of the Vilayet of Beirut, in yeah. which Latakia is, is integrated. Modernity is sort of a general theme that you can probably apply to anything uh, that mm -hmm. happens within the span of time <laughs> in one way or another. I mean, so what's the process that takes place during this period? Um, it overlaps with the Tanzimat period of the Ottoman Empire, of course, a major uh, administrative restructuring and, and sort of legal restructuring of uh, the Ottoman Empire, and especially later on, the provincial uh, settings in particular. That's the problem of this chapter. Um, Tanzimat, reform, modernity, and so on is one aspect, but there's so many different things yeah. going on that I try to, that I, I have to get in, into the pages there. Um, and the beginning of the century um, is really... Uh, kind of the opposite of the Tanzimat, the Ottoman state um, has either lost control or is just very, very hands-off in its approach to mm -hmm. governing this region, um, opening the door to local um, notables, again, uh, in the cities, the mm -hmm. Ayan rule in the cities, including governors who rule for a very, very long time without any sort of control um, and who are very inimical to the Alawis' interests. This is also a period um, of rising sectarianism, as the entire region comes under pressure, as the entire Ottoman Empire comes under pressure um, militarily from, from Western powers, um, comes under pressure, particularly in coastal regions, um, from the presence of uh, French and other European uh, merchants and, and, and navies and mm -hmm. so on and so forth, um, opening the door to um, a lot of instability, a lot of fighting between these different mountain elites where the Alawis, because they are more and more powerful, participate, mm -hmm. but also opening the door to um, sort of uh, Islamist reactions, um, new ideologies, Wahhabism coming up from uh, from Arabia and mm -hmm. having a big influence in, in the politics of Damascus and, and southern Syria. And in the case of the Alawis of particular importance, um, the arrival of a... Wahhabi-style uh, propagandist from North Africa, uh, Mohamed Al-Maghribi, or Mughabi, um, who sets up shop in, in um, Latakia and really motivates a lot of the uh, violence uh, between groups, a lot of the violence of tax collection that, that, uh, that was always a fact of rural mm -hmm. life, but gives it a new sectarian bent that probably wasn't there before. That's the first part of the century. Then, of course, comes a complete shift of gears with the Egyptian invasion, yeah. which sort of re reverses a lot of that and emancipates the Alawis like never before. The Egyptian regime wants to be very progressive, um, criticizes uh, Mughabi and the discrimination of the Alawis and the de, de facto slave trade in, mm -hmm. in Alawi girls as servants, maid servants in Latakia and so on. 
um, all the while trying to integrate the Alois, um, conscript the Alois, disarm the Alois, which of course doesn't go well, go over well either. Um, and when they're kicked out by basically the British, then the Tanzimat state comes along trying to um, establish central control with very, very few resources mm-hmm. um, as elsewhere in the empire. And when does that happen for the case of the Alois? Because it... Tanzimat is very uneven mm-hmm. in terms of like when we see a real impact. In some parts of the empire, it's very early, um, but in many others, it's extremely late. And and there's even parts of the empire that during the proper Tanzimat period of 1839 to 1876, we don't actually see many of the uh, reforms implemented. So for for the case of the Alavis, how is it? That's absolutely true. Um, we imagine the Tanzimat. Uh Go off, uh, go off like a rocket in 1839. That's of course not the case. Um, after the uh, Egyptians are kicked out, there's another long period where these local feudal forces mm-hmm. um, get the upper hand again and mm-hmm. dominate Alawi society. Although even then, there's a new approach on the part of the Ottomans. They try to put it in a more legal framework. They try to listen to the Alawis. Um, they start uh, trying to integrate them already in the 1850s onto the new consultative councils being mm-hmm. instituted on the provincial level, um, yeah. again, unevenly, but starting throughout the empire. Um, but where it really starts and why the Alawi Mountains, just like the Lebanese Mountains and, and the Chukulova and so on, are sort of an early uh, test arena of Ottoman modernity, um, it starts with education, with the, mm-hmm. uh, um, with the foundation of, of, say, a national Ottoman education system, which again is very uneven, but which is particularly important in these regions where foreign missionaries are so present. Right. So this is mainly under the reign of Abdul Hamid II that the education uh, in the Alawi region really takes off. And again, as, as you mentioned, it's in part a response to this uh, fact that missionary uh, educational institutions and even uh, attempts at conversion to Protestantism are occurring uh, sort of throughout this Levant area. Yes. It really takes off to Andrew Abdul Hamid, that's right, and, and, and it gets a very sectarian bent at that point. The schools mm-hmm. are there to educate them so that the Christian missionaries don't, but it's really right. also to, to make them Sunnis. Right. Um, and already the, the pu- building of public schools with public money or money public money raised locally already starts uh, several years before Abdul Hamid in these right. regions specifically. The state never really has... M- enough money to follow through and to to, mm-hmm. to get all the Alawis. But with Abdul Hamid, it becomes really a priority of the state. Yeah, and you mentioned this issue of what we might call Sunnification. Salim Daringil talks a little mm-hmm. bit about this uh, in his book, The Well-Protected Domains. Um, efforts to, in a way, subjugate Alawis and make them proper Muslims as a way of uh, retaining um, sovereignty or increasing the role of the Ottoman state uh, in this region uh, do you see this as a very top-down uh, process taking place, or do we find examples in which um, at least maybe Alawi elite um, or maybe merchants for economic regions are more willingly um, uh, participating in this process and even and seeking to um, uh, strengthen the relationship with the Ottoman state for one reason or another? Um, no, not really. The the Alawi elite, as defined up until that point by mm-hmm. their um, multazm status as tribal leaders and so yeah. on, they want nothing to do with the education of other Alawis. That would be a catastrophe for mm-hmm. them. Um, so they are certainly not participating in that. Um, who is a participating as far as we can see in, in, in the records, are the Alawis themselves. Mm. They are very, very interested in having access to schools. They participate in the building of schools. They participate in the financing of schools. Yeah. They have no choice. They, villages are being assessed specifically for the um, construction and, and maintenance of their own schools. And according to the uh, government uh, documents themselves, they are very, very eager to do this. Right. Okay, these are government documents saying this, but it's probably true. These mm-hmm. populations... Uh, realize full well that their path to uh, social promotion and and economic development has to go through education. And they very willingly go to these schools and they very willingly um, appear to convert to Sunni Islam. Mm -hmm. There's lots of references, very, very optimistic and and positive references, especially in the Yildiz Palace collection Mm -hmm. of, you know, tens of thousands of Alawis converting 
from one day to the next to Sunnism. Their right. authorities are ecstatic. Whether they've really given up their Alawism is another question. Well, there's this brief period, too, where uh, the religious uh, elite, I guess we could say, or the sheikhs or whoever, are uh, identifying um, the, the community to the Ottoman state as by this term, Hudai. Uh, sort of that they are, they are Alawis or Nusairis who have become... Um, you know, on the on the right path of Islam. Yeah, um, this is a little bit later. And again, the Alawis from the beginning on are very, just like any other rural population, are very savvy um, in addressing themselves to yeah. um, either the Western missionaries or the Ottoman authorities in the terms that will be beneficial to them, in the term in terms that will get them something like schools. Yeah. Um, and starting really in the 1890s, I think there is, again, it's it's an empire-wide phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It's nothing special to Syria or the Alawis. There is this culture of petitioning the central authorities in Istanbul mm-hmm. and asking for schools or complaining when they're being prevented, because this is a big problem, mm-hmm. when they are being prevented of going from going to the schools that have just been built by local authorities who don't believe that they've actually converted to Sunnism and so on. So they will petition the central authorities and they will of course, insist on their loyalty to the Ottoman Sultanate um, and to their desire for education and Mm -hmm. for guidance in correct belief. And they will use terms like the Hudai sect, the rightly guided sect, or the Alawi sect. This is something uh, that you can see in the documents, the occasional use of Alawi to describe themselves, to make themselves more give themselves a more universal Islamic identity. That's a very interesting development. And it kind of points to how, uh, especially during this um, uh, 19th and 20th century period, uh, a community like the Alawis is uh, kind of pulled in multiple directions. Here you have uh, a rapprochement between the Ottomans and the Alawis in terms of education. Perhaps um, many economic interests lie in sort of the, um, the, the, you know, being integrated into um, the broader uh, Ottoman geography, perhaps even, um, you know, this is an Arabic speaking uh, uh, population historically, but even sort of, you know, engaging in education in Ottoman Turkish would certainly be sort of another form of uh, uh, integration into that Ottomanist uh, identity. Uh, but on the other hand, during the, especially during the very late uh, 19th century and uh, early 20th century, you have the rise of, um, you know, notions of an Arab or a Rabophone identity in greater Syria. Uh, how are the Alawis also part of this development? That's an interesting question because the Ottomans are, of course, aware that they would like to make the Alawis Turkish Ottoman subjects. At the same time, they know that to reach them, they have to reach them in Arabic. And so mm. there's a discussion uh, over uh, what language school materials should be printed in. Yeah. Later on, it, it really is quite late. The development of Arab nationalism, like mm-hmm. any nationalism, is of course a late phenomenon, mm-hmm. um, even later in the mountains than in the cities like Beirut and Damascus, where yeah. of course the uh, a kind of westernized elite is already mulling these ideas for much longer. Um, the Alawis as Arab subjects and possible vectors of Arab nationalism, this is really a very late development um, it's really not before the First World War yeah. that um, competing claims are made on their political loyalty, namely by the progressive Arab nationalists of Damascus and Beirut, by the Sharifians, and by mm-hmm. the Ottomans themselves. So we're painting with very broad strokes here, but getting a general sense of the historical trajectory of the Alawis throughout the Ottoman period and really showing a number of periods uh, of transformation. Uh, amidst certain continuities and, and themes uh, in, in, in the history of uh, these populations under Ottoman rule. Um, we've got a couple minutes left, and I'd like to ask about those e- early years of the post-Ottoman period uh, that you deal with in your book. That's a huge uh, transformation for the modern Middle East, obviously, the, the fall of the Ottomans and the total restructuring of uh, the political map. Um, But we also see a lot of uh, continuities with what occurred uh, in the decades leading up to the First World War. Tell us about uh, the experience of uh, Alawis during this time, who mostly find themselves in the French Mandate of Syria, but on the other hand, have historical connections to the yet undefined boundaries between Syria and the modern state of Turkey during the 1920s and 30s. What do we see there? 
Sure, and, and that is sort of um, what interests me throughout the book is the historical continuities from one period to the next that are often treated in, in, in separate fashion. Um, if there's one theme that really applies to Alawi history in general in the 1890s and the early 1900s, it is their desire to be integrated into the wider political community, mm. to be recognized as Muslims, to be um, allowed to, uh, to go to state schools, um, and so on and so forth. And I think this holds true throughout the World War One period and into the early years of the Mandate or the Turkish Republic, which is where I, where I stopped the book. Um, and you see that, for example, um, in two aspects, two or three aspects I can think of. Um, the revolt of Salah al-Ali, who is today considered sort of the hero founder of the, Al- the modern Alawi community in Syria, um, who was a, a resistance leader against the French occupation, fighting mm-hmm. the French occupying forces um, immediately from 1918 until his defeat in 1921, mm-hmm. um, and who did this partially in coordination with other local rebellions in northern Syria, Ibrahim Hananu and so on, yeah. and who, like Ibrahim Hananu, had contacts with the Kemalists on the other side of the border, or what was going to be the border, and who were doing the same thing, namely fighting the French occupation forces. Um, and we have evidence, um, concrete evidence now, that um, he was receiving arms from the Kemalists um, and support um, uh, soldiers, um, helping him fight the French on his side of the border. Um, recognizing Turkey's leadership um, and uh, placing himself uh, in in sort of a post-Ottoman larger regional political project. Um, Other examples are, of course, from the Alexandretta district, which was originally uh, part of the mandate of Syria, but starting in 1936 was then contested um, because the Kemalists um, seeing that Syria might become independent, uh, raise their own claims, stake their own claims mm-hmm. to the district. And where, of course, many Alawis wanted nothing to do with um, Turkish national rule. It had become really national nationalist yeah. rule at that point. Many Alawis left the district to go to Syria. Um, the resistance against the Turkish annexation plans in the district were led by an Alawi lawyer. Um, however, there were also a number of Alawis in the district, which we talk about less today, who were very, very much in favor of its annexation mm-hmm. to Turkey. On or, what basis? Um, on what basis? They had old ties with the Turkish regime. For example, the lead Alawi um, landowner of the region who wanted, by all means, to stay with Turkey, um, the Marouf family, Sadiq Marouf, he or his father had been awarded a Mejidiya order in late 1918 mm-hmm. by the Turkish state. He was the most loyal possibly for personal uh, effective reasons, the most loyal to the Turkish regime. So it was those late Ottoman connections. Late Ottoman connections. Um, most of the Alawis in, Lata- in Antioch as elsewhere were poor peasants working on other people's fields. Mm. However, there were also a few large notable families who were landowners themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were not necessarily interested in joining in this new Republican regime in Syria, where they would be a small minority um, and where they feared for their socioeconomic status and, 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 and interests. Um, so some of them in Alexandretta wanted to remain independent under French mandatory rule um, or within the Republic of Hatay. Others, for older reasons of attachment to the Ottoman state, wanted to become part of Republic of Turkey. Mm-hmm. So there again, there's not a single position by the entire Alawi community. And so your narrative ends at this moment uh, with the... I guess the the division, the political division officially of the historical Alawi community, uh, that the um, the Alawis who end up on the Turkish side of the border are now largely citizens of Turkey, although connections do remain, and uh, the rest of the community uh, remains on the other side in what becomes an independent Syria. I mean, what's so great about this work, and I do recommend our listeners to check it out, is that it gives such a detailed history of really a very long period of time uh, that is often totally left out of the discussion, as you said at the beginning. And really, a lot of what I've read, especially in, in, in more uh, journalistic or political narratives of, of Alawi history, really kind of begins where your uh, work ends, right? Like, this is where you end is like almost the starting point for maybe the most nuanced contextualizations of discussion of the politics uh, and identity of, of Alawis in Syria today. Sure. And uh, as with any other periodization, there's no um, 
necessary reason why I stop it at the point I stop it. Um, however, the contexts, um, the political contexts, the, the archives and so on, um, dealing with the Alawis of Turkey and of Syria and of Lebanon and even of Israel, where there's small mm-hmm. populations of Alawis as well, these contexts become so different that it starts becoming difficult and possibly not so legitimate to try to squeeze them all into the same volume. So I think all those subjects I could have continued um, mm-hmm. on any one of them or on all of them, but it really is quite a different project. Yeah, and it's good to leave uh, something for someone else to do and write about since there's uh, this is a topic of like tremendous interest, I think, for a lot of people today, given the uh, its relevance to uh, understanding or reinterpreting uh, uh, the present context uh, in Syria, the political context in Syria. I think there's so much left to do, and not just in the periods which I haven't covered, but also in the periods which I did cover. In the Ottoman period, there's an, an endless amount of sources that are still out there that are that I haven't seen yet or that I haven't been able to, to cover in as much detail as I liked. Part of the, or the major point of the story of the book is just to say there are these sources um, out there. There's no reason to um, claim that these periods are obscure yeah. or unimportant um, as is being done in current discourse. There's no reason for it. So the discourse about the completely mysterious and unknowable past of the Alois is... Uh very much called into question by this work it it sets a new uh, research trajectory um, for people who are interested uh, uh, in the history of the Alawis showing that uh, while it is again an Arabic speaking uh, community historically that there's lots of Turkish sources and Ottoman sources with which you can do some detailed uh, work on the subject Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to us about this work it's been our pleasure thanks for having me Uh, Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. I want to remind you that you can check out our website, OttomanHistoryPodcast.com, to find out about Stefan Winter's book, A History of the Alois, From Medieval Aleppo to the Turkish Republic, out this year from Princeton University Press. Also a great place to leave your comments and questions uh, and get in touch with our other listeners through Facebook, where we have a community of over over 25,000 followers. That's all for this episode. Join us next time, and until then, take care.